Welcome to the Launch University Podcast, turning good intentions into reality in your career, business, and life. Here's your host, Kevin Jennings. Hey, everybody. This is Kevin Jennings, and it's a pleasure to be here with you on today's episode. Uh, Before we jump into the interview with Liam Martin, I wanted to just set up today's conversation for you because it got so good that we had to break this interview into two parts, even though that was not originally the plan. So in part one of this interview, Liam and I have a chance to connect. Um, Liam is the co-founder and CMO of Time Doctor, which is a time tracking and productivity tool for organizations, especially those that have remote employees spread around the country or the world. But he talks about in his story how he solved his own problems and used that to solve the problems of others. So we kind of walk through everything from uh, how he found out he was not suited for what he was studying in uh, in college um, and how he leveraged that discovery to help others and how he also leveraged his pain of running a team with remote employees and use that to help other people. And even how in college and shortly thereafter, he used his desire to make more money and it became a way for him to make more money for others. Well, here's my interview with Liam Martin, CMO of Time Doctor. Well, everyone, I am super excited today because I have the privilege of being here with Liam Martin. As I said in the intro, he is the co-founder and CMO of Time Doctor, which is a tool that allows you to track Uh, the time and productivity of your team members when you're operating remotely. Uh, And Liam, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, so so I had a chance to uh, do a little bit of digging and research on you uh, before we got to connect today. And uh, well, I know hopefully it's all all good, all good. (laughs) And and one of the things that really stood out to me uh, was really the fact that despite the companies you've ran and led recently are technology companies that you have a degree in sociology. And it, it, yeah, that is true. Yeah. You did do your homework. Wow. Yeah. And, and it made me just think to myself, how did a, how did an individual who started out pursuing a degree in sociology end up running a, you know, a national organization well, really more international organization with people spread out in multiple countries around the world. So I would also for love for myself and for all the listeners to hear kind of your story and how you got to where you are. Sure. So I was originally going to be a sociologist. That was the plan. So I was, I took my undergraduate degree at uh, Ottawa university. I took graduate school at uh, McGill University, I was pursuing a PhD in sociology. There's two things that you do when you enter graduate school in sociology. You either become a professor of sociology or become a lawyer. And I was focusing on the uh, professor track. So I went to a pretty good school, uh, the best school that I could afford anyways, and um, was pursuing that, that PhD. And I ended up teaching a class a first-year sociology class, and this was the first opportunity I had to teach. So before that point, I had been a teaching assistant, but this was my own class, and I was really excited about it. I remember really focusing on the lectures and making sure that everything was great, and uh, long story short, I started with about 300 students, and by the end of the semester, I had about 150. 
not a very good result for a for your first class. I also uh, we we get these ratings, and those ratings are submitted um, for uh, to universities. So, like you, you get there's a whole bunch of different variables that you measure as to whether or not you want to hire a professor for a university. And one of them is your students' ratings. And I was not doing very well. I was, I was around a three out of five, uh, which, was, which was not very good. So um, I remember stepping into my supervisor's office after that class, and I said, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he said, no, you are not. Oh. <laughs> and I said, so where am I at? And he said, well, if you want to keep doing this, if you want to pursue sociology as a career, you're going to have to teach for the next 20 years before you could get a tenure track position. And then it doesn't really matter whether you have to teach anybody because you can do whatever you want. And I said, I don't know if I'm really willing to put another 20 years of eating, you know, this kind of stuff uh, for, for another two decades before getting into that. And he said, well, um, maybe you should figure out something else to do because you're not very good at this. And he said, either get better at this or figure something else out. So I figured something else out, got a master's degree, literally wrote up 150 pages. It's one of the worst master's projects, I think, of all time. But I was given my, my master's degree and then I went into teaching. Uh, or sorry, I went into lect- uh, tutoring. So I figured out that I really liked educating people, but I didn't really like lecturing. So I got into tutoring. That turned into a business in itself. Uh, and then the problem that I had inside of that business was I would have a tutor that would tutor a student for supposedly 10 hours. I'd send the bill out for 10 hours of tutoring. And then the student wouldn't come back saying, he only worked with me for five hours. So then I would have to go to the tutor and the tutor would say, hey, uh, I definitely work with this guy for 10 hours. Wow. So who do you believe? Who, you know, who knows? So I'd end up billing the student for five hours. I'd refund the student for five hours. I'd pay the tutor for 10 hours and I'd end up losing money on the deal. Wow. And that was destroying the business. So it had a very good, I got up to about 200 tutors throughout uh, North America and Europe. So we were tutoring a lot of kids, but it just was not sustainable um, to get to that next level. And Time Doctor was a perfect tool to solve that problem for me. So it allowed me to very clearly identify, well, you didn't actually work 10 hours with this guy. You worked for 10 hours and 32 seconds. And here are all the websites and applications uh, that you interacted with during that process. So it's very precise time tracking, but it's more than just time tracking. We kind of call it like time analytics. Hmm. So we don't just measure how long you've worked. We measure how productively you've worked. So that then kind of opens up a whole bunch of different options for how businesses are structured and, and how you define productivity and, and all those types of things, which maybe we'll get into in this podcast, but I find it very interesting and I kind of see what I'm doing right now as large scale sociology. Wow. So I'm able to take like this think tank of hundreds of thousands of people and I have their entire work days in our database. And now what we're doing is we're literally saying, okay, well, we can do experiments on absolutely anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to know when someone's going to quit their job? We can tell you with an 89% accuracy rate six months before you're going to quit your job that you're going to quit your job. Wow. Um, it's all sociology, right? It's, it's sociology at scale. 
Mm-hmm. That's that's fascinating. Well, you know, I, I mean, no matter what happens, I know I have a lot of follow up questions for you that we may have to save for another interview and do a part two. But okay. I, so, so, so my, my question for you really is just going back to one second. So you mentioned, hey, I, I love educating, just don't want to lecture. And that leads to a tutoring business. Um, I think anyone who's ever started anything where it started out with them being the primary service provider, um, which a lot of our listeners are, they might be an owner operator in their in their business. That decision to go from just you to 200 tutors, I mean, that's a pretty big leap. And I know there's a lot of it in the process that likely took you away from tutoring. So I'm just curious to hear just like, how, like, how did that come about? The I'm tutoring, I'm good at tutoring. People call me because Liam's a good tutor. And then I look up and now there's an organization that people trust. And now there's 100 plus of us. So just kind of, I'd love to even you know, hear like the, the, the Reader's Digest version of that story as well. That's sure. interesting. Yeah, I can remember that very clearly, which was I was pulling in about three grand a month tutoring, I believe, eight students and regularly. So I, I figured out a niche for myself, which was uh, tutoring the pre-med prerequisites, which is Bio 1-2, Chem 1-2, Math 1-2, and Physics 1-2. If you don't get aces across all of those classes, your chance of getting into a top tier medical school is actually quite low. So most pre-med students or students that want to actually enter medical school, they'll pay ridiculous amounts of money to get aces on all of those classes. So they usually, it's a very easy thing for me to come in and say, yeah, I can come in and, and help you with this. So uh, we had eight students and I was making about, it was over three grand a month. And, you know, that was, that was good. But then I realized, well, the first step was realizing that I shouldn't walk over to tutor a student. I should just do it over Skype. So that was a major aha for me. And this is back in the day when like Skype was, (laughs) I mean, Skype existed, but like high speed internet didn't exist in the same way that it does today. So we were like, oh, you know, should I? Should I do this? Or, you know, I can do it with a couple students, but maybe not all of my students. And then basically recognized, hey, this is the best way to do it because I can basically improve my personal productivity by 30 to 40% because I just have calls lined up right after each other, which was much more effective. Then the second thing that we did is I was up to about four grand at that point. And I just said, you know what? I I need to try to, if I'm going to expand this, I don't just, I'm not happy with just making $4,000 a month, even though that's a pretty good amount of money to make. I'm just not happy with that. And what I would like to do is make more. So I uh, put together a crappy little website and uh, I had a uh, friend of mine that I had hired to be able to do some of these classes with some of these students. And then it just kind of ballooned from there because we realized that there were very few. And and the other advantage that we had in the market was that we only hired graduate students. So it was only graduate students that were going to be tutoring you. And most other tutoring companies didn't have that. So I was very disciplined about who I chose, which ended up being a different kind of issue where we couldn't find talent uh, as effectively or as quickly as we wanted. But once we really started to get the word out and we built a very tight referral system inside of those tu- inside of those tutoring sessions, it really kind of ballooned from that point. So most pre-meds 
hang out with other pre-meds. And then we would get like a guy would try math one and end up with a B and then we'd go in and we'd get him an A plus. Well, he would tell 12 of his other friends and then that's how it kind of just ballooned um, up until that point. And then we ended up hitting that other barrier would actually stopped me from really scaling it to the next level, which was the, um, the hours tracking tracking proper time remotely was a major issue for me because I really didn't know whether or not that tutor was working with that student for 10 hours. Yeah. And and, and you said, so two questions. So that, that barrier of time tracking is really, you said what what kind of halted the growth of, of your tutoring company? Yes. Because once I was not able to, everyone was basically a number at that point. So I didn't know, Oh, I, I didn't talk to Kevin, the tutor, I talked to Tutor 198. I just didn't, there, there were processes that were built in that just didn't, they, they weren't friends of mine and they weren't friends of friends. They were just people that were just trying to make, their, make some money. And it was a difficult process for me to be able to get it to that next level. No, that makes a ton of sense. So, so when I hear you, you sharing that, my first thought is, you know, and obviously, you know, you've learned so much and grown so much since then. Um, you know, high size 2020, but it sounded like there was a lot of experimentation happening. I mean, it sounds like, Hey, okay. I, I stumbled. I mean, I experimented my way and, you know, strategized my way to the pre-med niche. I kind of strategized and experimented my way to finding out that we're going to be graduate students who, you know, doing that, which is going to have a unique kind of labor force or labor access. And I experimented my way. I mean, is, is that an accurate assessment or, or did you, or did you kind of go in thinking, all right, I'm just, you know, this is the idea itself. The idea was to do this. For sure. For sure. I mean, it was, not, it was all experimentation. It still is experimentation. Everything we do every day that I'm, that we're doing at the company is just finding a faster and cheaper way to fail at things. Because the more things that you can fail at, the faster you get to success. Uh, I can give you a perfect example. I remember sitting in the dentist chair and I was working 16 hours a day on average. Uh, I was working and then I was sleeping. That's what I was doing. I was making a lot of money, but I was working and sleeping. And I just thought this was the grind, right? Like this is what you've, you've got to do. Uh, so I was in the dentist chair and I had chipped a tooth and I asked the dentist, Hey, I've chipped a tooth. I'm, I'm getting issues with hot and cold here. Can you take a look? She took a look at my teeth and she said, well, which one? Because you've chipped like 10 of your teeth. Wow. And I don't know what's going on with you, but I don't see this. I see this with people who, you know, have PTSD. Like you've got, you've had a major, and she showed me the x-ray of my teeth before and after. And it was two years in between. And she said, you know, you need to, you need to figure something out. And I realized at that point, actually, that hiring, I didn't have the proper cash flow and the pieces weren't in place to be able to hire an expensive assistant hmm. and, and an expensive customer support rep. But I could hire a uh, cheaper assistant or cheaper people in uh, Southeast Asia. And that actually is what also got me into outsourcing on mass was just recognizing that you could hire this labor and this labor could work at 
probably about a quarter of the cost at that point in comparison to U.S. labor. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get approximately the same level, the same quality of service. So it was a major jump for me. And that took some of that stress off. But again, the the thing that just killed it. And it's it's interesting when you look back at these types of businesses, because that business could have been very successful Mm -hmm. at a certain level, meaning it could have been a very comfortable one to $3 million a year business. And I probably could have put half a million bucks in my pocket every year, but that wasn't really what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was get to a hundred million dollar business. And it's a completely different architecture, but for people that are looking at, Hey, I'm, I'm constantly blown away by people that are focused on trying to create the $100 million business before you've created the $1 million business. Mm-hmm. And they're, di- they're different businesses. And the thing is, is that if you put all of your energy into building a million dollar business, the chance of you doing it is way higher than building a $100 million business. You know, a yeah. $100 million business is like, uh, forget about the 1%, it's like the 0.1% of businesses. Yeah, yeah. So when you think about it that way, it's like, are you really good enough to be a 0.1 percenter? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not, right? Like, if you yeah. give yourself a cold, hard look, right, and, and think about it, but then you could say, well, I could build a million-dollar business, learn really how to build businesses, and then when I'm ready, maybe make that next jump. Yeah. Because if you've got one clear win in your pocket and you really only need one, then to get to the next level is a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, that makes. I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. To say, you know, at the end of the day, we as as leaders, as visionaries who might have creative ideas or want to or want to solve certain problems or just achieve certain levels of success, that we can be tempted to try to design the perfect solution to the end goal when there are natural steps and stages that we have to go through to get to where we're going to go. Right. Absolutely. So that so that kind of leads me to I mean, you kind of hit on this earlier. One of the questions I wrote down for myself really was I was interested in hearing what, ex, you know, what was that was happening with the remote workers and team members that weren't appropriately documenting. You kind of hit on that, that they were falsely reporting or, or mm-hmm. you know, or maybe the client was falsely reporting the services provided to save money or earn extra money on both sides of the coin, leaving the business in a really tough spot. So that kind of leads me to. This idea, because I do know that you are, you know, you lead staff.com and timedoctor.com. And, and, mm-hmm. and, for the, and so what I want to do is first just say, so what does staff.com do and how does it interact with Time Doctor? And, I, and then I want to unpack a couple ideas behind that as, after you kind of unpack what those services do. Sure. So the two services are relatively the same. However, there are some pretty significant differences between the two. The staff.com product is an enterprise version, in essence, of the Time Doctor product. Mm. And Time Doctor is for SMBs. So if you have less than 100 people, you'd want to jump into Time Doctor. If you have more than 100 people, then you might want to take a look at staff.com. And what staff.com does is we serve large multinationals, and they're really trying to figure out how many people are... um, quitting their job every year, let's say it's 50%, how could we reduce that number? Well, that's what staff.com will do. It will analyze through machine learning all of the different variables that affect whether or not someone is going to quit. And it looks at tens of thousands of these different variables using artificial intelligence and then can tell you, hey, yeah, someone's going to quit their job because of this reason, because they hate their manager. 
And maybe we should move this person preemptively because it looks to me like they're going to quit their job in three months and 28 days, as an example. Uh, Time Doctor is really focused on remote team productivity. So not just measuring how long you've worked, but what you've done while you were working. So I personally, I mean, everybody uses it in the company, uh, and so do I. So right now, I'm working on the task called podcast. And then I can compare that with all the other podcasts that I've done and really start to figure out how long does a podcast take for me? Uh, how can I properly deploy my time better? Where am I productive? Where am I unproductive? Uh, those types of things with, with Time Doctor. That's fascinating. So, I mean, for the nerd in me and for, I'm sure, all the other nerds that are listening, when you say we can tell you someone's going to quit six to eight months before that happens... I mean, I'm assuming you're saying, hey, we've looked at other people who've quit and this is what starts to change in how they're, you know, operating on a day-to-day basis that indicates that's where they're headed? Or is there an actual like satisfaction survey or score that's indicating that kind of information as well? Nope. It's uh there's no uh there's no direct input required. Wow. So we've collected tens of thousands of quit events Mm. on our network because someone will just quit their job and then we'll record that. But then what we also record is the last six to 18 months, theoretically, of their work logs. And then we compare that signal to our control, which is our hundreds of thousands of other users on the system. And then we can very clearly tell you, this is what this is when someone's signal starts to change from a happy employee to someone that's going to quit. Wow. Okay. Now, uh, now, once again, if you can't share this, I get it. But what have you seen are some of the leading indicators from just behavioral changes that you can say, hey, this is when someone was satisfied to unsatisfied. And, you know, is there anything that like might shock and awe of us? Yeah, it's very difficult to kind of communicate that because it's a computer that's analyzing this information. Sure. It's not a human being. But I can give you a couple that are kind of interesting. Yeah. Like, top performers. So if you have a salesperson that's recording this, let's say through Salesforce, is a top 5%. Companies, there's a company recently that I dealt with that calls them their platinums. Platinums can do, in this company, can do whatever they want because they just bring in more sales than anyone else. And those guys have a very high chance of quitting. But the reason why they want to quit is because they know that there's better jobs out there for them. Wow. So there's all of these different variables that kind of come into, and they all kind of coalesce. Uh, We look at tens of thousands of different variables, and then we figure out, okay, yeah, this is why someone's going to quit. And here's our theory as to why this is going to happen. Um, The biggest predictors that we have is is management. So if you don't like your manager, you're going to quit your job. That's the clearest signal that our our algorithm can, can literally predict. Because it's just such a big part of the way that you work. How does that? How does that show up? I mean, in activity, I would I would imagine that that's a, you know, like I mean, because you're not because I'm not inputting anything into the system. How does my satisfaction with my manager or my leader show up in my behavior from what you've seen? So there's a couple ways that you can do it. Um, you collect the org chart, so you know that this person is managed by this other person. Hmm. And then you start to see the communication that occurs between that manager and that that employee. And you see when they communicate, how they communicate. Are they sending emails at 3 o'clock in the morning? Are they sending you know, uh, a bunch of messages on, on Slack or on Skype or something like that to just bug the heck out of them? And these things all kind of 
it's a very small difference. But when you look at it from a statistical perspective, the signal is quite clear. But if you were to just look at a workday, at least if you were a human and you were looking at a workday, you wouldn't be able to tell what's going on. But you can just see like people get angry at other people. And it's, it, it is definitely something that happens over months, if not years. That is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, because that's one of those things where, I mean, as as, an, as a as a company, I would imagine that the the that's the real win, right? Is my ability to figure out who my who which managers I put in that you know that shouldn't be in that role before I lose lots of employees because of a bad manager. Absolutely, there are other situations where you'd have a manager that maybe has a really high quit rate, so employees, a lot of employees quit under this manager. But this manager produces top performers. Well, which one do you want to take? And that kind of boils down to the definition of productivity. What does productivity mean to you? Does productivity mean making salespeople that are in the top 10% of their sales team? Does it mean having uh, salespeople that have the highest net promoter score and customer satisfaction? Hmm. Does it mean having salespeople that... Uh, produce the most long-term value. So there might be a lot of salespeople that are really good at selling, but they won't actually educate the customer on what the product is. So they can they can post a lot of really good month-over-month sales numbers, but their year-over-year sales numbers suck yeah. in comparison to the other guys. Yeah. So what's your definition of productivity, right? It's just like, it, it, it's so fluid. And we've discovered that every company that we deal with, there is a different definition. So we have to adjust dependent upon um, that client that we're working with. Wow. So I think I'm going to jump in right here. I think there's so much we just got in that first section of the interview where Liam breaks down the fact that it's actually typically our top performers in, in on the sales side or just top performers in general that we need to be most concerned with because those individuals often know that there may be other opportunities out there for them. But what most excites me is that as a launcher, my biggest indicator of my ability to keep a fantastic team around me is how well they're being led. Now, we all know this intuitively, but what most gets me excited about what Liam said is the reality that as launchers, if we want to keep a great team around us, we have to be mindful of how well they're being led. And that even if a department is performing well or a team performing well or a particular function is going well, if we have people leaving the organization, we should always pause and kind of ask ourselves, is this a trend? Is there something taking place in the organization that I should be mindful of to make sure that I'm not letting a bad leader undermine what I'm trying to create for the team and for my customers. Um, and so there were so many pieces of stuff to me. Obviously, I loved the idea that every time life threw Liam uh, a lemon or a challenge, he made it something that could be leveraged to help uh, and move things further along as far as his vision in life. But you need to tune into next week's episode because the first question I'm going to ask him is how is Time Doctor evaluating productivity? We talk about productivity for all these folks who are using these tools and how they can learn, but how is Time Doctor measuring productivity? How are they leading a remote team? And what can we learn to apply to where we are today 
to do the same. Um, so I hope you tune in next week where we're going to talk all about how to lead remote teams and how to actually measure productivity within our own organizations. I'll see you next time on the Launch University podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, we love for you to subscribe to this podcast. If you go to launchuniversity.com forward slash podcast, we have links where you can subscribe on, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, Tune in, Stitcher Radio, or even via RSS if you have your own podcast catcher that you like to use. So we love for you to connect with us there. We also, at that same location, have access to where you can get any of the show notes. That's right. We actually do the hard work where you can get the show notes. That's right. Every week, we create summaries of every single episode so that we do the hard work of taking notes for you so you can focus on your commute, uh, focus on your workout, mowing the lawn, carpool line, wherever you are, and then go back and find the resources. So if you go to launchuniversity.com, that's youniversity.com forward slash podcast, you can find links to resources that are mentioned in this episode. Once again, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Launch University podcast. My name is Kevin Jennings, and we look forward to having you join us next week for part two of our interview with Liam Martin. Thanks for listening to the Launch University podcast. We hope it's helped you move from go-getter to difference maker. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more helpful resources, visit launchuniversity.com.